So the mission of the Messiah. Matthew 8. Jesus begins moving in very powerful signs and wonders. And he comes to a place where he has to travel. Most of Jesus' ministry included what he was doing in the north of this region called Galilee. And in Galilee, there's this sea called Galilee. And a lot of his ministry was zigzagging across of this sea, this body of water. And I think it was in his wisdom how God decided to do that. Because everywhere Jesus went, a large crowd came with him. And if it wasn't for this body of water for him to hop across, they wouldn't leave him alone. And Jesus was stirring up crowds, but never sitting with them long enough. He would stir up a crowd with signs and wonders and miracles and, and, and draw in a great gathering and create much attention and conversation. And then as soon as the momentum was building, he would leave. He would say, now it's time to get in the boat again. And then he'd go to the other side of the, 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 the pond. And here's what he's doing. He just calmed the storm as they're crossing the water before he's doing many miracles. And now, in verse 28, he crosses over to the other side of this body of water, the Sea of Galilee. It says this, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out from the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding some distance from them. And the demon begged him, saying, The demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into this herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everyone, especially, um, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men, because Mark says that they returned in sound mind. They were able to dialogue and communicate. They were reasonable people again. There was a true transformation of them. And so the herdsmen explained, this man changed them. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil thoughts in your heart? And this is an amazing statement. For which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, again the same reaction, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So here is Jesus on his mission, and he encounters two types of people. One is called the demons, 
And those are the people with disease, demons and disease. This is the Messiah's mission beginning and overflowing to those who are demonically uh, oppressed and those whose bodies are buffeted by disease. This is the Messiah's mission over demons and disease. And it is right after he began preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, all through the Sermon on the Mount, explaining what the kingdom of God is. And then he comes down from that mountain and he takes on the mission of the kingdom of God, which is the dynamic invasion of the realm of God into the realm of men. And what follows from that is a lot of good. Because in the realm of men, there is so much evil and so much sin. It's the place that you and I live daily. And this place, this uh, Venn diagram, if you were, where this realm of God bleeds into the realm of men. And at that cross point, there is a translation of a tremendous power and virtue and goodness. And people are healed and demons run away because it's the hegemony, you could say, or the drawing a line in the sand of where the realm of the kingdom of God is meeting the realm of the kingdom of darkness. And the demons, unlike the people in these stories, are very well aware of what's going on. They understand the ontology of this world, you could say. They really get it. They know, like you and I think that it's just this and now in America and the 4th of July and we're driving to work and we're going out to eat and that's just, we're doing life. Meanwhile, there is a whole unseen spiritual realm behind everything we're doing that has eternal consequences and there are also highly intelligent non-physical beings that are aware of this. And so you and I are just doing our thing. And these demons are acknowledging what have you to do with us, son of God. We know who you are. And we know how this is going to end. Have you come here now early to torment us before our final judgment? They're aware of all this. And meanwhile, you and I are just the herdsmen trying to keep our pigs alive. Just trying to get a paycheck. That's the realm in which you and I regularly operate outside of the mind of understanding to internalize the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, that it's really all about this. It really isn't about the pigs or the paycheck. But they know who Jesus is. And so Jesus is laying out his mission. And so people were saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, birds of the hair, air have nests and foxes have holes, but I have nowhere to lay my head. Another man says, I will follow you. But first let me go bury my father. And then Jesus says, no. Let the dead bury their own dead. I only have a few short years here. I have to do exactly what the father has given me to do. Come with me now or depart. I'm getting on the boat. I'm leaving. I have to go over here now and meet these demoniacs. That's just how the Lord is working. His mission is calculated, intentional. There isn't a moment wasted. He's always walking by the will of his father in tune with the next thing he should very well be doing. So the reason that there is so much goodness in this is because God's kingdom is meeting these people. It's the real goodness of God meeting all the problems in this world. And the two ones brought before us this morning are the problems of demons and disease. And you were thinking, I know the second one. I understand that problem. That's an existential problem I or the loved ones around me feel regularly. But the first one is not something we much give time to at all. The problem of demons. But they come together, demons and disease, back to back in these two uh, great miracles of Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating his authority. 
He comes to these demons, these two demon-possessed men. They're demonized, you could say, is the Greek word. They met Jesus. They're coming out of tombs. They are those who are left on the fringes of the city, the outskirts of society. They are dysfunctional. They are dangerous. No one goes near them, and they don't come into the city. They are living in caves. The, most, the best place, if no one can let you live in a city, they're probably living in these caves, staying dry from the rain in the tombs. And they come out. They're so fierce that no one passes by that way. And they come and say, what have you to do with us? Are you here to torment us, to judge us, to condemn us before the appointed time in which you will finally condemn all evil and wickedness in the world? And Jesus, and this is the beauty of the kingdom of God, it's already and not yet. Because they're thinking in the realm that it is now. Now it is. Here's the kingdom. And many dispensational theologians and whatnot would say, well, we have to wait for the kingdom to come. The big millennial kingdom, this thing where everything's going to be great. But the gospels are saying it is now. But not yet. Here is Jesus beginning to do a little bit of a judgment. He's removing these demoniacs, shifting and commanding them as pieces on a chessboard. But he's not outdoing it all yet. We live in that realm. You and I live. This is our mission. This is actually, we live to lock arms with spiritual evil darkness through the power of the gospel and to advance the kingdom. This is the Messiah's mission. So there's a herd of many pigs nearby, and they beg to be put in there. And so Jesus simply says one word. He just says, go. And they go. And they fill these pigs, and the pigs run off and die. Probably without the intention the demons would want that. Because here is something we'll get into now. The mystery of what is this thing of demons. Is this just the idea of an ancient um, way of thinking? We live in a mechanistic world. A scientific world. You have a disease, it's because of a cell, and because of a chromosome, and that's why. And the ancients, of course, are living in a, in a mystic world. You have a disease, it could be a demon, and it could be a voodoo, and it could be this, and this is why. Should we just divide that and say this is just ancient foolishness? No. Right? Unclean. It's all about being unclean. All the laws of the Old Testament are thinking this way. These are... Jesus is in the Gadarenes, which is the realm of the Gentiles. There's no Jewish people around here, hence all the pigs. Jews don't really like pigs much, if you didn't know. There's a Jewish area. This is an unclean land. These are unclean spirits. They're an unclean place, the tombs, where there's dead bodies. No Jew would be near a tomb. And also, there's unclean animals. They go into the pigs. Everything here is unclean. And later in Matthew, Jesus will explain in Matthew 12 what a demon is. Jesus says, a demon is an unclean spirit, Matthew 12, 43. And when it goes out of a person, he says, it passes through what's called waterless places, seeking rest, but finding none. Waterless places, that is, there are non-physical, intelligent, moral agents, minds, spirits, beings, demons, that influence this world and you and I. That's just a clear teaching of Scripture. And in Deuteronomy, they are likened to be those who dwell in the deserts. The place was about water. And so Jesus is drawing that analogy out to say that they seek to manipulate this created world. And for them, it is like finding home, finding a place where there is water. And they don't like not being in a home. 
if you catch the story, if you're, they say, if you're going to send us out of these, pe these men, then let us be in those pigs. They don't like not being in something like this or in some way related to some physical creation that God has made. This is just clear all throughout Scripture. It jars our mind, our modern mind for sure. And they see this and it's bizarre. It's unnatural. The herdsmen flee and say something is happening. Some spiritual power is being relayed here that's just not normal. And they simply just say, Jesus, go, leave, leave. We, we don't know what you are, some Jewish magician or a miracle worker. But they don't see him for who he is. They don't interpret what's going on here, that the Messiah has come. They have no idea of all the old prophecies that this is how God is to save the world. There was not just some magician just supposed to show up and do a few tricks. This, though in a very small piece of history that you and I would never know apart from having seen it through scripture, it did not have so much consequence. It's not as though Jesus just simply healed these demonic possessed men and the whole world changed. In fact, the very next village over didn't even know what happened. It wasn't that big of a deal. But what it really is... It's a symbol of what's actually happening. It's the vanguard of a whole entire military affront of God that has been transpiring for multiple millennia to invade the realm of men and bring true righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And you and I are in this timeline. That's the significance of what was really happening here. So can Christians, you and I, in the sense of this, actually be whatever is called demon-possessed? What realm, what significance does this have for you and I? As far as the mission of God, we have to account for this. If we're actually going to follow Jesus, as he said, this is what he does. To be demon, it, the word is daimon isomai. It means to be not, de see the idea is thinking this. If you think of being demon-possessed, that's not the right way to think about it. Saying demonized or being under the influence of demons is, is biblical. And it's actually something that still is a live situation for you and I as Christians. Now, 13 times this word is used in the Gospels. And actually, it has to do with very severe cases. Usually it's these kind of stories where two, two people are just fun dysfunctional in society. Truly out of the right. And it's called being demonized. But in no way can we as Christians, dwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, have any um, uh, force uh, that could manipulate or bind us, right? There is Romans 6.14, for sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You are not enslaved to this sin. That, the contrary to that verse is, outside of Christ, you very well could be enslaved to this sin. And listen, in our modern context, it makes no difference whether you can exactly pin a demon behind something unless you had this absolute spiritual wisdom like Jesus does. The reality is, the fruit of it is, many people are bound. Many people are bound in their minds, in their habits. They are beset with such wrenching grief and dysfunction. And sometimes there's a natural cause to that. But we should be balanced on the other side to realize there is a spiritual world. And this is the reality in which Jesus operated. Except the warning is also true that we can still have, as Christians, be under strong influence from these spiritual forces. See, John 14, Jesus said, John 14, 30, he says, The prince of this world has no hold over me. Now he said that because he is sinless. He is Jesus. 
That's why he did all the things he did. He was able to. He had literally, there was nothing for them to grab. There was nothing for them to manipulate with him. He was perfectly righteous. There is no handle upon him. A sin in your life is a handle. And Jesus is saying, I'm perfectly seamless. There's nothing they can grab on me. I am righteous. The God of this world has no hold on me. But unlike Jesus, we're told, Luke 13, that a daughter of Abraham was bound by Satan. And she was uh, set by it. Christians are given greater power by the Holy Spirit to resist these forces, but to not even realize you're in the game. And that's the point. The mission of the Messiah. Just to even realize that this is an option on the battlefield. This is a spiritual reality in your life. To entertain the reality that you have to wrestle with other spiritual forces through the Holy Spirit that is in you and actually resist them. That not everything is just simply caused by natural causation. The mystery of demons is that in scripture sometimes it is connected to disease and sometimes it is not. And so obviously uh, Pentecostal churches and those like go down this road where everything is, is, is spiritual and, and you're sick and it's a demon and it's, it's just confusing. Matthew 4 there is uh, this description of Jesus' beginning. And it is uh, his fame spreading throughout all of Syria. And everyone's coming to him. Those who are sick, afflicted with various disease. But the list goes like this. There were, there were those who had pain. There were those who are oppressed by demons. There were those who had seizures. There were those who were paralytics. So all those are distinct things. You can be having seizures or be paralyzed, and even in the ancient world, they're still not thinking that might not be caused by what is said to be a demon. But then you flip that, and this is the confusion of the matter. Matthew 17, a man comes uh, because his son is having seizures. And immediately Jesus responds, and he rebukes the demon. The demon came out of him, and the seizures left. So sometimes, the scriptures are making clear, there's actually a cause related to this. There's a spiritual reality behind this. And sometimes, as Matthew 4 says, there isn't. The warning, the warning is that it is sin that gives it this power. That Jesus resisting these demons and having no place, they have no foothold in his life, so that he can actually command and control them by the, the, his own moral virtue. It's all about moral virtue. This whole world is one big covenant And the reason we don't have any power is because that has been taken from us because we are sinful. And what followed was that following death, which is close cousin to the second part of this whole story, which is disease. It's all connected. And so here's a warning. Ephesians 4. This is is Paul writing to Christians, you and I. Those who actually are temples of the Holy Spirit. Those who are actually in right relationship with God through Christ. The warning still stands though. He says, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. The reality is, there could be opportunity for the devil. You can expose yourself to some level of spiritual oppression. The word there for opportunity is topos, which means place, or location, or room. Some translations say foothold. Sins in our life, Jesus Christ lives in you. And he might be in the living room with the doors shut. But when we sin, and you know this all well, 
that it plays upon your mind in such a way that it nags you for successive days. That right there is the back porch. That right there is the front porch. That is this idea in which spiritual accusations are coming to your mind. And Ephesians is saying you have created opportunity. You've created room for the devil. You might think that's just my own conscience. That's just my own psychology. It is and it could be more. And to realize that, to understand the level of the spiritual warfare we're in, Ephesians is warning, confess your sins, get rid of it. Leave no room for Satan to play with you. Ephesians 6, he goes on and says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, protects you from the wiles of the devil. Contrary to that would assume then, you will be attacked by demonic forces. And if your righteousness, if you do not regularly lay before the Lord Jesus Christ and articulate and internalize your righteousness in Christ and confess your sins freely and readily at any moment, what you're having is holes in the armor. What you're having is holes in the mesh behind maybe or whatever to, to, to realize there's, Paul says, flaming darts of the evil one. There are holes in which he can get to you. Unlike Jesus who says, he has no hold on me, there's a reality in which he could have a hold on you. This is the mission of the Messiah. That it is a demonic warfare that he is fighting. And the second part is disease. That he moves from there to transition to healing them of disease. He crossed over the sea again and they brought him a paralytic. And Jesus saw their faith. See, he was pra- they were practicing faith. Faith in scripture is faith that is real, right? They bring him on the bed, the paralytic on the bed. It's one thing to say, I believe Jesus could heal this man. It's another thing to say, I believe Jesus could heal this man. And now I'm putting him on the bed and bringing him to Jesus. See, Jesus says, I saw their faith. That's, that's actually trusting. Faith produces works all the time. And so Jesus sees their faith. And he says to him, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And now the scribes, of course, in their minds are thinking, this man's blasphemy. Only God can take away sin. And they're right. Only God can. All sin, even if I sin against you, I've always sinned against God every time. And there's no one who can forgive me of that. You could forgive me for offending you, but when I offend you, I offend God, and I need him to forgive me. Every sin is an offense against God. There is no sin in which God must not be the one offended and must not be the one to distribute forgiveness. And so Jesus comes up to this guy who simply from the distance is just paralyzed. What did he do? Where is his sin? Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. And the the tense of the verbs in this verse are present. That's a performative statement. He's saying right now your sins are forgiven. Not your sins could be forgiven or your sins were forgiven. With the verbiage coming across my tongue, you are clean. And then those present there say... Who does this guy think he is? You don't just clean people from their sin by saying it like that. You're not God. You blaspheme. And then Jesus says, I am God. The kingdom of God has come. Your sins are forgiven. And do you understand that I could tell you Say you came into my office and you wanted to talk about something 
and I could say to you, you're forgiven. Wouldn't that be nice if I could just make you feel better if I just lied to you? I, I Go to the Lord. He'll forgive you. But I can't do that for you. And then so Jesus says, you fools, which would just be easier? Where is sin? Do you see it? I, did, did, they, did he clean it away? You're forgiven. Well, yeah, it's easy to say that. No one in that room would even know. Now get off your bed. So that you might know the Son of God has power to forgive sin. Get up and walk. Demonic forces, disease, connected to this one thing called sin. Demons have no stronghold on you if you have no sin. There is no disease or death without the curse of sin. But Jesus, with his righteous words, performative words, can simply say, go, and demons are gone. Can simply say, stand, and paralyzed men walk. Because with those same words, he can say, forgiven. And in the moment he says that you are forgiven, you are righteous, you are clean. The mystery of disease is that it can oftentimes be connected to sin. In John 5, there's a man at the sheep gate of Jerusalem. And there's a pool called Bethesda. Now this, this absolutely amazes me. Around the pool, it says there were five colonnades. There's no hospitals in the ancient world. There's really not much of a medical thing. You just take some oil and, and, and drink some water and hopefully you heal. So if you are an invalid, if you're chronically sick, you simply just sit there under these five massively roofed colonnades that would keep you out of the sun and rain. And you rely solely on people passing through to give you food or money. And that was their social security system. If your families couldn't provide for you. Five colonnades. And it says lay multitudes of invalids. There was a blind man, it says. He was there for 28 years. Laying here. Under this roof. And Jesus healed him. Now, if you were to think, and I had a dear friend I spoke with recently. He was actually under the assumption that when he reads through the Gospels, that Jesus would always seek to heal. If you read the Bible, there are five colonnades of sick people. And Jesus went to one of them. Only after he was there for 28 years in Jerusalem, which Jesus, in the course of his life, would have walked by that gate multiple times. In 28 years, Jesus is 30. That's a lot of years of passing this man again and again and again and not healing him again and again and again. See, the mission of Jesus is not just to heal, not just to bring Victory over this whole life. He's using it all for his glory. And so he says to the man. And he heals him. And he says sin no more. That nothing worse will happen to you. 
You see what he did? He took his disease and in some way connected it to sin. But sin's not always the cause for disease. There's Job, or later in John 9, Jesus saw a blind man. And they simply say, was this man blind? He's been blind from his birth. Was he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus takes that away entirely and says, there is no sin behind this disease. This man was blind so that I might work the works of God, so that God's glory might be displayed. There's no sin behind the disease. So what is the mission of the Messiah? This is the mystery. This is the question. You see Jesus doing this thing, these things. You walk through the Gospels as we will. And you see him performing all these signs and wonders. But it's interesting because sometimes it doesn't always match. If there's all those multitudes, multitudes of sick people, why only one? Is this really his mission? Is this what he's trying to do? If his goal was to heal people, he's actually not doing that good of a job. Every time large crowds of sick people show up, he eventually gets in the boat and leaves. He walks past five colonnades of invalids who have been there mostly their whole life, most likely, and doesn't heal them at all. What is the mission then? Mark 1. Jesus heals many so that he might preach the gospel. It truly is it truly is the mediation of the spoken word of God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That changes everything. Healings. Miracles. Signs. Wonders. They do not do it. Mark 1. Jesus heals many. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. And this is amazing. He says that evening at sundown. They brought to him all who were sick and oppressed with demons. Disease and demons again, coming to Jesus. All who were sick and oppressed with demons. And the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many, many demons. Again, healing all these diseases. Casting out all these demons. Doing it again and again, all throughout the mission. You would think, this is the mission of Jesus. This is what you and I should all be about. This is what Jesus was doing. They're coming to his door. This is where he lives. He has no place to run. There's no boat nearby. And two, three in the morning, however late he is, all the power of this Messiah, the anointed one, given the Holy Spirit with great measure is just being flowing through his, his, his body as he is the great mediator, touching God and man together, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of man. And what's happening is healing and demons fleeing. And all this energy, all this excitement, all these hundreds and hundreds of people waiting, waiting, People limping, people who have been sick from birth, people who are blind, people who can't hear, people who have cancer and tumors, they're all here. They're all flocking to him. All the energy, all the excitement. He's probably exhausted the very next morning. It says in Mark 1, 35 to 39, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed. He did it again. He did it again. He ran away. He departed and he went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And so Simon sees he's actually walking around with his eyes open. Jesus is praying with his eyes closed, seeking for the wisdom of the Father to complete his mission. What is the mission of our church? What is, why are we here? 
What is New Life Presbyterian Church? We don't need Simons. We don't need to just look around and just find every need immediately and think we need to do this. We need the wisdom from the Father to say, Lord, what is it that we must do now? Look at the difference here. Here is Jesus alone in the dark, in the morning, running away from the crowds. The moment of peace he had before he knew what the next morning would bring, if it was anything like the previous evening, of all of the people that needed healing. And so he's alone with his father, praying in a desolate place, and Simon found him. And he says, they're all searching for you. Everyone is looking for you. And his very next response was, let us go to the next town, that I may preach, preach, preach. Preach there also, for this is why I came. That is it. That's the mission of the Messiah. To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foolishness of that gospel, mediated by the power of the Holy Spirit, will do greater things than you will ever cross your fingers as you flip the gospels. Every sign, every wonder, every exorcism is nothing. Nothing compared to preaching the gospel mediated by the resurrected power of the new covenant blessing and anointing of the Holy Spirit upon foolish people like you and I. We will do greater works than Jesus, like he said in John 14. That is the greatest work. That when Jesus was done, there was 120 of them left. But then then some fool can preach the gospel like Peter and 3,000 come the very day. This is it. This is what Jesus was doing. The mission of the Messiah was to preach forgiveness from the very beginning in Matthew 4. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. To the very end of his mission in Luke 24, he opens up the scriptures and he says this, that everywhere, always, throughout all the world, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning of the mission to the end of the mission. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, union with God in Christ, Joy overflowing in all circumstances, even if you are bothered by demonic thoughts, even if you are beset by physical disease. That is not the point. It is to know Christ and to be known by Him and to be full of joy and love in Him and satisfaction from Him. That is the gospel. That is it. And so here... To see it this way, in closing, 2 Corinthians 12 is where these two come together again. Here's Paul. Three times he says, Lord, take away this thorn I have in the flesh. Whatever it is, something in the flesh, probably disease, maybe not, that is bothering him. Lord, you could do this. You could take it away. You could make me whole. You could make me healthy. And then he says... This is a messenger of Satan. There's the demon part again. Disease and demons. And he knows God could heal him. But he doesn't. For the whole mission of it all is this. The Lord responded to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That God will use disease. He will use fretting demonic thoughts to make you weak, to bother you. 
so that you'll trust him. To break you so you would trust him. And when you trust him, you actually have his power then. To be broken, to be used, to actually change the world, advance the mission of the gospel. This is the mission of the Messiah. This is what Jesus was doing. This is why when people flock to him for healing, he simply walks away. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we pray that you would make this mission solidify for us as a church, Lord, that we would see that all of the things you put in our life, all the things that make us weak and doubting and insecure, they are all meant to make us rely upon you, to have actual power in you, Lord, that we would take no confidence in the flesh, that we would rely solely upon your spirit. Lord, we pray, we pray, Lord, by the truth of what we just said, the gospel, the the glories of your son, Lord, that you would make us these kind of disciples. Lord, that you would make us mature and equipped, that you would actually make us faithful to see that you use all evil for our good. You use everything to beset us and weaken us and set us aside in many ways that we would only lay hold of you. Lord Jesus, we ask you for your grace and your powers we leave this morning. Be with us in our fellowship, in our joy, in our love for one another. Fill us with all the good things that you have from us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.